Welcome back to the Remember Who Made Them podcast. I'm Venetia Lamana, one of the co-founders of this campaign, and I'm really delighted to have my fellow co-founders on this call with me, Swati, Davy, and Ruby. Now, if you're new here, I encourage you to listen to our previous six episodes. And if you like what you hear, please do share the episode on your social media. It really helps us get the fair fashion message out there. We are delighted to be bringing you a very special bonus episode to close out the year. And what a year it's been. We are going to be discussing an article and a guest that has really, really impacted us. So on the show today, we have Elizabeth Klein. She is a New York-based author, journalist, and expert on consumer culture, fast fashion, sustainability, and labor rights in the apparel industry. So Elizabeth recently wrote a piece called The Twilight of the Ethical Consumer for Atmos. We absolutely loved it. I will leave it in the show notes. And I thought before we get into the interview with Elizabeth, we would just have a little bit of a chat about this article and why it's so important. Davey, let's start with you. What did you think of this article and why? Why do you think it's so important? I've been struggling with my whole fashion journey of how to reconcile the fact that I still have, you know, fast fashion in my closet um, mixed in with some more ethical pieces and, you know, how to reconcile that. I love wearing the two and, you know, sometimes I can't help but still indulge in, you know, what's on trend for the season or I just want to feel good. Um, even though I'm not going anywhere during the pandemic. But I felt like with Elizabeth's article, it was helping me address that buying a piece of fast fashion, I don't, it's not the end of the world for me, if so long as I make sure I back it up with other actions to dismantle the system. So I almost actually will be wearing fast fashion to the revolution that dismantles it in a little way. I mean, Don't get me wrong, I do still try not to shop at H&M or other major huge brands, but I'm not going to beat myself up over it because I know it's, I spend almost the rest of my day trying to change the system. But I don't know, is that how you've been thinking about it, Swati? Which of us doesn't have fast fashion in their cupboards or their closets? Um, and hasn't indulged in it in the past. I think we've all been part of buying into that system. You know, and most of us come into this by thinking, well, how can I be more ethical? What can I be buying more? How can I be buying better? And how, how can I be sp- supporting small ethical businesses that actually care about people and planet above profits? And can I put my dollar, my pound into that? And I think what Elizabeth's article and you, you know, you all, all hear in the interview She talks about how a lot of us come into the journey from that space. But actually, when we start understanding that this whole system has been created on exploitation, there is exploitation from the very beginnings of fashion um, and the, the modern day fashion industry. Fast fashion was coined by this sort of being able to turn around a new design and have it on the shelves within a matter of days, whereas, you know, before it took much longer and kind of fed this system of us being like, I can buy more and I can afford to buy this rather than having to save and, and wait um, for things. So the system has 
been created to fuel overconsumption. And we have all been part of allowing that to happen. But I think Elizabeth's article is so good because it actually then delves into being an ethical consumer is just not enough. And we all know it's not. When we talk to workers, when we talk to the problems and start to understand how the system operates, the fact that, you know, brands they drive the prices and they pass that on to factories because they say we need this produced for this amount and if you can't make it we'll go to another factory and we'll go to a poorer country with even worse human rights or labor laws to make that happen so it is brands it's brands who are absolutely driving that and as a consumer you are not able to necessarily change the system as rapidly as we all want to see it. We produce 150 billion pieces of clothing and 30% of that is never sold. By us not buying it, the system is not going to change as rapidly. They're still going to keep producing more and more. We need to be in better understanding of how the system operates. And we also need to be better in solidarity with workers' movements who are really at the heart of this. And I think what you'll all find from listening to this episode is just the connections that Elizabeth makes to her journey in moving from being an ethical consumer to being a consumer activist from Andrew who talks about labor organizing and actually what uh, workers when they collectivize and build power together the changes that they're able to make and also hear from workers in Myanmar as well around the change that they have seen happen that they are demanding but more than that thinking beyond what we can do as consumers to how can we be in better solidarity with workers how can we listen to what workers are asking for um, how can we understand what movements are asking for and what can we be doing beyond just putting our money into something buying ethically isn't enough. Yeah, just to add a little bit of my reflections from the article, I really loved it as well. I think I really appreciated the focus away from sort of individuals being responsible for and able to change things on their own, but really pushing towards more of a collectivized frame and just how critical that is as we do think about being in solidarity. I think in terms of um, being in solidarity with workers, for many, I think of it starts of just recognising, first of all, the interconnections between the struggles and the relationships between, you know, what you're buying and what you're doing, but also how workers are, you know, what they're experiencing and being able to make those connections and then finding really tangible ways to be in solidarity, which we'll talk about later. We need absolutely everyone to be a part of this movement and it cannot be that you can only be a part of it if you can afford expensive clothes from sustainable brands gonna say this now if you have clothes you can be a part of this movement so without any further ado it is my honor and pleasure to pass on to the brilliant mind and wonderful person who we are so greatly inspired by elizabeth klein Elizabeth is one of the initiators of Pay Up Fashion, of which Remember Who Made Them is a partnering organisation. Pay Up Fashion is building on the momentum of the now viral hashtag Pay Up campaign, which we amplified in episode one of this series with Remakes founder Aisha Barenblatt. For more on this campaign's amazing work, please do see the show notes of this episode, where you'll also find a link to Elizabeth's Atmos article, The Twilight of the Ethical Consumer, which we are excited to discuss today. 
Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us today. We feel truly honoured to have you on the podcast. But let us start as we always do. We would like to hear what you're wearing today. We ask all of our guests this and it just helps us connect back to the people who made our clothes. (laughs) I feel like I would have said something so different, you know, a year ago before the pandemic. Um, I mean, I I live in New York City and... uh, you know, I've, I've pretty much been housebound for, for eight or nine months. So I am not wearing anything glamorous. I'm wearing a pair of jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt that has my partner's, uh, it's his band's t-shirt. So a Paul Bearer t-shirt. Um, and then let's see. Oh, my socks match today. So that's a step forward. And then um, some flip-flops. I love it. We're on a very similar vibe. I'm wearing nothing glam. So yeah, same page. Before we get started, it would be really good to hear about how you got into writing about sustainable fashion because you've done this for quite a while now. You know, I started writing about the fashion industry a little over a decade ago. It was actually after the first great recession. I had lost my job at an environmental magazine and I was in this place in my life where I um, I knew a lot about the food I was eating. I was a very conscious consumer when it came to the way that I eat. And I had no idea what I was wearing. And I had this closet full of cheap clothes. And I remember just doing a Google search to try and find out about the environmental and social impact of what I was wearing. And um, I think it turned up maybe three articles. This was in 2010. So no one was really talking about these issues in the way that we're talking about them now. Um, So for me, it started from a personal place. I wanted to understand what I was wearing and its impact on the world. And I guess the rest is, is history. Love that. Thank you so much for giving us that grounding. Now, we were recently hugely impacted by your article for Atmos titled The Twilight of the Ethical Consumer. Having built a career on writing about conscious consumption, it was quite surprising to read that you decided to stop being an ethical consumer in 2020. So can you explain to us a little bit about how your involvement and work with the Pay Up campaign this year uh, impacted how you see your role as an ethical consumer versus what you refer to in the article as a consumer activist? Even before working on Pay Up and before the pandemic started, I, I was starting to question some of the tenets of the ethical and sustainable fashion movement. Um, One of the things that uh, stories that I was working on prior to the pandemic was looking at what was going on in Bangladesh in particular, because I knew that after pouring millions of dollars into their factories to make them more sustainable and safe, that the price that brands were paying Um, to the factories was actually going down. I was seeing this huge disconnect between the conversations that we have on on social media, where I think it's very easy to feel like change is happening because it's an echo chamber. You're following other people who look like you and think like you and talk like you. I think it's quite frankly, it's it's pretty, pretty easy to kind of fall into this space where you think you're you're building a social movement and it doesn't necessarily line up with reality. And the other thing is that in the 10 years since Overdressed, well, Overdressed hasn't been out that long, eight years, 
fast fashion is, has grown. It's just grown tremendously. The production of clothing has grown tremendously. The economic concentration has grown tremendously. So I think as a movement, we have to stop every once in a while and really look and analyze the impact that we're having, because I don't know how other people feel, but I'm not just doing this to make myself feel better. You know, I think the original plan was to reduce the social and environmental impact of fast fashion on the world. And there's not really any evidence that that's what our movement is achieving. I mean, I certainly on the same page as you, I definitely don't want to just be doing this for my ego. And honestly, your article has just impacted me so so tremendously and and I think it's something that once you've read you'll keep thinking about especially as like a part of my job is to basically sell ethical products so uh yeah needless to say it's really really got into my head now in the piece you say we must confront that it's unacceptable and arguably deeply unethical itself to ever tie human goodness to what we buy why do you think this is just such a hard notion for so many of us to swallow you know for the last 30 years, we've seen the privatization and commercialization of virtually every, every space in our lives. Um, you know, even the way that we conduct ourselves on Instagram is very commercialized, you know, like most of us think of ourselves as, as brands. Um, and most of us are interacting with each other with some sort of commercial lens, you know, like it's in Instagram in particular, I think has been a, a big driver of this where, you know, you start out growing a, a following and then before you know it, suddenly you're selling products to other people or talking about products. You know, I, I, I want to say that like, you know, I, I will continue to do ethical consumption because it is a huge part of my income. Like, right. We all need to continue making money. This is a social uh, you know environmental and social sustainability that that is a huge market right there's a huge market for those products and a lot of people's jobs are tied to those products but what is happening i think is that over time the better we get at this privatized type of social change so telling people to vote with their dollars the more out of practice we get at making change in other ways to me, that's like a bigger, that's the bigger issue. You know, people keep saying, oh, I, you know, you can do both. I'm going to keep doing ethical consumption and public change. And, you know, if that's what people want to do, I think that's fantastic. But really, if you look at the data, most Americans, and, you know, it's probably a similar situation in, in the UK and Europe, are not politically active. We vote and then that's about it. Maybe we donate to some causes, but we are not politically engaged. We are not taught how to build social movements. We're not taught how to change laws. We're not taught how to write policy. And if you look back at social movements from the 1960s and 70s, that's what it meant to be a consumer activist, was you were, you were trying to change the rules of society so that that change was available to everyone. I'm actually also really interested to hear how this has kind of changed, potentially changed your relationship with the work that you've done in the past. When I look back at Overdressed, I think that the the critique 
of fast fashion that the book provides is still something I'm I'm very proud of. And I think that the analysis of the problem is still spot on. Um, and I remember when I was working on the book, my my book agent and my publisher said, well, you, you're, you're going to have to provide a solution. Like you're going to have to tell people what to do. And I remember thinking like, I don't know how to solve this problem. Like it's so huge, right? Who am I to, to tell people how to make a difference about a problem that is, is so complex and so global. So what I did was really, I looked to the, you know, and I mentioned these books in Atmos, it was very heavily influenced by Michael Pollan's work in The Omnivore's Dilemma and uh, Eric Schlosser's work in Fast Food Nation. And Eric Schlosser in Fast Food Nation, this is actually a really good example. So that book is about the fast food industry. And he does advocate for reining in corporate power, uh, regulating changes to policy, but then he in the, in the end, he gives you an out by saying, you know, I can't remember exactly what, uh, what it says verbatim, but you know, the, the first thing you can do or the simplest thing you can do is change where you eat. So stop supporting the fast food chains. And, um, I think that that is what happens a lot of the time with ethical consumption is we say it's just one part of the strategy but then over time, it has become the only strategy. You know, I'm sort of reiterating what I said before, but we're getting worse at wor- worse and worse at making change in other ways and better and better at doing ethical consumption. So fast forward to The Conscious Closet. When I look at that book, I think you can see me sort of wrestling with myself because the first half of the book is about, you know, sustainable consumption. And I absolutely still believe there is such a thing as sustainable consumption. Like we all know that in a sustainable world, we'll, we won't be able to buy as much as we want whenever we want and throw it away. Um, that paradigm is not going to exist in a truly sustainable world. But then the book kind of does this hard stop. And then the very last section of it is about labor rights in these sort of huge issues of inequality and, you know, structural racism and colonialism that's happening in the fashion industry. And to me, when I look at the book, it doesn't really provide a compelling analysis of how those two things go together. Like how does the shopping sustainably connect to these huge labor rights issues? Um, Because at that point, I, I wasn't sure how they connected. It was like, that was the reality I was living in was like my ethical consumer bubble on social media. And then these huge, more systemic issues that were, were going unaddressed. And I'm sorry, that was a very long response. (laughs) No, it was a brilliant response. And thank you for being um, so transparent. It's, I think it's really, really helpful for us to hear. Here's, here's the conversation that I've been having with people about this transition is this is going to be a long and awkward transition for me and for anybody else who is used to doing ethical consumption only as their mode of social change. And I bring that up because, you know, I think that we live in this world of like instant gratification and we think that things have to be 
simple and immediately available to us. Like I had so many people be like, well, what else am I supposed to do? And like, I, I can't really answer that completely for people because I am on this journey, right? Like I am, I'm just now starting on this journey, but I can talk a little bit about the experience of working on pay up you know, a lot of it has been, and we, we do talk about this a lot in the ethical fashion community. And, you know, I think fashion revolution has done a good job of kind of getting people to think about um, acting collectively is like coming up with campaign goals. You know, that's one of the things that ethical consumption, I think, lacks is a, a an effective political campaign has concrete goals and a timeline to meet those goals. I mean, the beginning of the campaign that the goals were very simple. It was get the brands to pay in full and on time for orders placed prior to the pandemic. Um, But as the campaign has gone on, we had to regroup and say, well, what is the bigger ask here? What is it that we want the industry to do moving forward? And um, we started talking to labor rights experts, legal experts, garment worker organizers, and really getting a feel for what the community wanted to happen coming out of this crisis. And that's when we came up with our seven actions for change, which is up on the payupfashion.com website. And so once we had our roadmap, now comes the hard work of building a long-term movement that educates the public and creates the political will and momentum to make changes to uh, international trade. We need supply chain regulation so that brands are held responsible for what happens in their factories. We need a new mechanism to make sure that brands and suppliers enter into secure contracts that don't just benefit the brands. And we need a mechanism to ensure that garment workers are paid a living wage. And I think before I worked on pay up, I would have been like, well, all of that is impossible. Or, or I would have thought maybe just saying those are the goals and moving on would be enough. But what I'm learning now is how, and I, I swear, I just am just like fumbling through this process, but I try to, to make it my mission every day to, to, to find the people who know how to do these things, lean on their expertise and fold it into the, um, the strategy of the campaign. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. It's reassuring to know that you're fumbling uh, in the same way that we are <laughs> here at Remember Who Made Them. Totally fumbling. <laughs> I yeah. love that. Um, now, what we've learned from our discussions with garment workers and unions across the world through the Remember Who Made Them campaign is how organising and actions and movements with garment workers at the heart are what we need, where we need to put our collective energy How do we demand more from those companies to support garment worker collective demands and address the injustice now? I know this is going to be a long process, but I'm really keen to hear your thoughts on that. What we need is is reform, right? We need new new regulations and and legal reform. Um, So one of the things that's happening in the United States is the Garment Worker Protection Act is going to be reintroduced. Um, I think in December, um, which means the California State Assembly should be voting on it again in the spring. That piece of legislation is going to be really important for our community to get behind because what it does is hold brands accountable for wage theft in their factories. And that is 
huge because what we've learned during the pandemic, and you know, I think maybe we all sort of knew this before the pandemic, but it really brought it into sharp focus is that even though brands say that garment workers are not their employees, through their through their purchasing practices, they control they control the lives of garment workers through, you know, from everything from the hours they work to the pace at which they have to work to the wages they receive. Um, so one of the ways to stop this sort of cycle of the race to the bottom where brands make all these profits and they don't have any responsibility uh, to garment workers is to close those legal loopholes. And the Garment Worker Protection Act um, in California is a really, uh, really powerful example of that. Um, we're also seeing more countries pass uh, sort of like supply chain due diligence laws. Um, I think France has probably the most stringent one. And that's really important because, again, it, it gives um, advocates and workers a way to hold companies responsible for what happens in their supply chain. Because really, really the problem is that no one is accountable in this industry. Suppliers are not um, responsible if there are human rights problems in their factories and brands certainly are not responsible. So workers are still earning poverty pay and these companies are just raking in profits. It's absolutely horrendous how everyone just shifts the blame and it just makes me so angry. But um, moving slightly on from that anger, we'd love to hear how hopeful do you feel about the future of a new solidarity economy in fashion under the current system and whether or not there's anything that's uplifting you about the fair fashion movement at the moment? Are there any movements, people or unions that you'd like to tell us about as we would love to shine a light on them? I do feel hopeful for the first time in in a long time. I think that the pandemic, in addition to revealing the urgent necessity for systemic reform. It also provided activists with a lot of tools to make change in the industry. So for example, we have access to a lot of the contracts that brands impose on their factories. We have more details about the sort of purchase order system. Like we know way more about the mechanisms, the, the, the way that power is exercised over factories. And that's really because when brands canceled orders, factories were so freaked out that they were incredibly candid with journalists like myself, labor rights groups. And that information is really going to be the foundation for making uh, the case for reform moving forward. In terms of groups that I want to, to shout out. You know, we have so many fantastic partnering organizations with Pay Up Fashion, like two of the co-authors on our seven actions for change are at the AWAJ Foundation, um, which is a garment worker collective in Bangladesh, and then uh, Stand Up Lanka. So those groups were the, the co-authors of our plan. Pay Up Campaign could not have done what we've done without the research of the Worker Rights Consortium and Mark Anner at the Penn State Global Center for Workers' Rights. They're, they kind of operate behind the scenes, but they are so good at what they do, and they're so meticulous, and they are constantly talking to 
you know, workers on the ground, suppliers, talking to brands, just making sure that we have the, the data that we need and the leverage that we need to move forward. Thank you so much for sharing that. And um, really delighted to hear you mention Awaj Foundation as they actually were our guest in the last episode of our podcast. Um, we had Nazma Akhtar on the show. So this feels like a very nice way to kind of close the loop for want of a better phrase. Um, but Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us and for your time. It's been just such a pleasure listening to you and hearing your insights. So thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I really enjoyed the conversation and I'm looking forward to, to listening to, to Nazma's episode and the rest of the podcast as well. Thank you for, for you know, giving a platform to these conversations. Next up, we're chatting to Andrew Tillett-Sachs, who is a union leader and organiser who has led many organising campaigns and struggles for worker justice across the United States. He is currently based in Southeast Asia and works on behalf of the American labour movement, providing solidarity to workers in Southeast Asia, largely in garment factories, in their struggles to organise unions and improve their working conditions. He has been really helpful in our understanding of how brands hold the power, and in this interview, he tells us more about what happened to workers at Diwali factory in Yangon in Myanmar who make clothes for Mango and Lidl. Earlier this year, there was a horrendous case of union busting where over 700 people lost their jobs for requesting clean water, among other basic rights. They have since won reinstatement after months of struggle by workers and outcry from campaigners globally. Andrew Tillett-Sachs, thank you so much for being a part of this call. Let us start as we always do. What are you wearing today? That's the first time I've ever begun a meeting or an interview with that question. <laughs> uh, I'm wearing a, a, a white t-shirt with a, a, a vest from the, the Thai Auto Workers Union um, t-shirt made by Haynes. I apologize to your audience if I, I'm, I'm not up to their... Um, fashion standards. <laughs> so we'd love to hear how did you become involved in the work that you do now and can you tell us a little bit about what an average week doing what you do looks like? Sure I mean I was a worker um, in the United States in a casino and we uh, organized a union where I worked because the wages were uh, very low and the working conditions were awful and uh, from then on, I, I became a union organizer and spent over a decade in the U.S. Um, going around the country organizing uh, low-wage workers into unions. And um, for the last two years or so, I've been working on behalf of the American labor movement in Myanmar and surrounding countries, just providing solidarity to our sisters and brothers in the factories and in the working class in these countries as they try to form unions and as they try to fight for decent working conditions. Um, so, you know, a typical week for me is really spent just meeting with the workers um, themselves. In Myanmar, it's mostly garment workers. And so um, when they can take a day off, we meet during the day. Otherwise, in the evenings or on Sundays, they're only day off. And we basically just talk about strategy, about how we can organize more workers into the unions, how we can launch campaigns to try to pressure the employers. Why do you think that we have this kind of 
space in the fair fashion movement and this kind of lack of appreciation of what what the reality is for garment workers i mean i think one thing is that the brands do a good job of kind of papering over it they they invest a lot of money into you know pr campaigns to make it seem like they actually care about their workers and to make it seem like they're not using sweatshops in reality the entire industry is based off of sweatshops and, and off of inhumane wages and, and unbelievably inhumane working conditions inside the factories. Like I said, you know, the brands, um, rather than investing in, in, you know, decent working conditions with decent uh, length work days and slower um, work pace and decent wages, rather than investing in that, they make the decision that it costs them less to invest in these PR campaigns where they can make all of these profits by paying the workers nothing and driving them like mules for 12 hours a day and spend a little bit just trying to paper it over it with these bullshit sustainability campaigns. We would love to hear you explain why and how brands hold the power because something that keeps coming up every single time we hear of a situation of union busting is the, the brand blames the factory. Every single time this keeps, keeps happening yeah that's a great question the the brands um i would say about 99 percent control directly control the wages and the working conditions in in the garment industry i mean there's so many garment factories there's so many suppliers and there's there's relatively few of these mega brands and so the the factories are just crawling over one another um, trying to get these orders. And so it becomes a, a race to the bottom, right? The brands um, demand certain prices for their goods and they demand certain turnaround times so that they can meet the, the latest trend for the season as quickly as possible. What that means when you demand a certain price, it means that the, the factory owners you know, they, they can only pay the workers so much. And when you demand certain turnaround times, it means that the factory owners have to drive the workers to work at unbelievably fast uh, rates at unbelievably long hours. And when there's that type of pressure uh, to finish an order, it almost inevitably leads to really nasty um, abuse, verbal, physical, sexual, from the um, from the supervisors, and so what happens is if the factory owners say no, we can't, you know, we can't pay that price, you know, we can't accept that price for 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 the clothes. We need more because we want to pay our workers a, a decent wage. The brands say, okay, we'll go to the next supplier. Or if the factory owners say no, we we can't turn it around in time. The workers would have to do. 70 hours a week, you know, 12 hour days and, you know, they have families, brands say, okay, we'll go down the road to the next factory then if you can't do it. I sit in negotiations between the, the workers, the factory owners and the brands. A lot of times when either we form a union or the union um, goes on strike or there's some type of dispute, we try to pressure the brands to sit in negotiations with the union and with the owner. And what I have seen invariably is every single time 
that the brands tell the owners to do something, whether it's reinstate union leaders who have been dismissed, whether it's agree to certain working conditions, um, you know, be it clean water, clean bathrooms, bonuses, whatever it is. Invariably, when the brands demand it, the owners always oblige, the owners always listen. There is zero um, ambiguity when you actually sit down at the table with the union, the factory owner, and the brand. Who has the power in the relationship? And so the brands have, like I said, have constructed this, um, you know, diabolical lie that, oh, the workers don't technically work for them. They work for the factory owners, so there's nothing they can do. They would like to, and they really believe in sustainability, and they really believe in corporate responsibility, but their hands are tied. They don't, the workers don't work for them. It's complete horseshit. I don't know, I'm sorry, I don't know if I can swear on your uh, <laughs> podcast, but I don't know another word for it. These are the workers who, with their hands, make their products that they then flip for huge profits. And these are the workers whose wages and uh, working conditions they directly control. And yet they deny um, any culpability because their profits depend on the continuation of this awful poverty, exploitation, and misery amongst the garment workers. Thank you for that clarity. And we agree there is no better word for it than horse shit. Um, we would really appreciate it if you could tell us about the recent issue at the Diwali factory with both Mango and Lidl. How did the reinstatement of the garment workers come about? And also, are you concerned that you'll run into the same issues with Mango um, and Lidl in the future? Yeah, so let me just start by saying it's a humanitarian crisis. I think the one thing that can change it for the better is the, the garment workers union movement. In the United States, we had a, a sizable garment industry in the beginning of the 20th century with you know actually pretty comparably awful working conditions and then workers organized into unions, um, into the ILGWU, uh, the Textile Workers Union. And through massive strikes and, and massive struggle and massive organizing drives over a series of decades, um, they were able to improve uh, the, the, the conditions of the factories. In, in Myanmar, we have a burgeoning union movement. A lot of factories are organizing unions. A lot of workers are going on strike uh, in order to form unions and demand improvements. So what happened in the pandemic is the factory owners saw an opportunity to stop this progress that garment workers were making in forming unions um, because workers' rights and rights to assembly were restricted because of the pandemic. Workers found it much more difficult to strike without being thrown in jail. Um, a lot of workers in March continued to strike, but with new assembly restrictions in Myanmar, of, of no more than five people, a lot of workers were thrown in jail for 90 days. Um, and so the factory owners seized upon this opportunity to try to break a lot of the unions that had formed um, over the past year, two years. And so we saw this wave of union busting where in factory after factory, all of the workers who were members of the union would be dismissed 
um, and the factory would give the pretext, the, 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 the false excuse that it was because of the pandemic and orders had declined on uh, raw materials were, um, weren't coming in, but they would only fire the union members and they would usually quickly <laughs> replace them with new. Um, it was just a pretext, just a false pretext. That's what happened at Diwali factory. Diwali factory um, produces, like you said, sister for um, mango clothing, the Spanish brand and, and Lidl, the, the German uh, like super grocery chain, who I guess also sells apparel. At Diwali factory, all 700 plus union members were fired. No non-union workers were fired. They continued um, to work at the factory. And Diwali uh, workers had organized a union previously. Um, they were strong. They were demanding things like clean water. They were demanding things like clean toilets. Um, they were doing what unions do. They finally give workers a voice to speak up about the, the problems and inhumane conditions. And also they give workers the opportunity to have some power to win those things. And so the factory decided to get rid of the union. We contacted Mango and um, we contacted Lytle and said, this is both illegal. It's a massive violation of the workers' rights to organize a union, uh, which they technically have. It's simply a, a violation of human rights. You know, these workers have the right to things like clean water and without being fired for requesting them. What happens almost every single time with the brands happened with Mango and with Lyle. First, the brands give us some type of BS dismissal where they say, okay, we're going to investigate it. We'll do an investigation. And that's their way of basically trying to say, okay, we'll look at it, go away. And if you don't follow up and if you don't continue pressuring them, the thing just drops. But we continue to apply pressure. And we actually got Mango into negotiations with the factory owner with the union, but they wouldn't agree to reinstate any significant number of the workers. And then, you know, I think, Venetia, you started posting about the mango stuff online and tagging them. And we got some press um, on Lytle in various countries around the world about what was going on in the factory. And we even got some of the unions in the United States and in Spain to call the companies and to pressure them. And once it started to blow up like that on social media, Mango called us very quickly. It's really encouraging to see that social media can play a part. But obviously, you know, it's just, I feel like it's the least we could do to show solidarity to the, to the garment workers and the unions who are fighting so hard and being so brave. What was really interesting about raising the awareness on Instagram specifically, someone said in the comments, like, this is factually incorrect. It's not Mango that is causing this issue and denying people their basic right of clean drinking water. It's the factory. If we'd framed it in the kind of way that the factory that Mango uses, we wouldn't have had the same amount of people DMing, commenting, emailing, writing to Mango. And perhaps that conversation wouldn't have sped up so quickly. And it also proves, right, the situation proves that it is the brand who holds the power. Like you said previously in this conversation, they are the ones who need to be held accountable and they can be held accountable. 100%. And what you just described about it being difficult to get people to care because they say, oh, they're not, you know, Mango doesn't directly own the factory. 
that is specifically the goal and the strategy of that subcontracting model we were talking about before, where even though the, the brands control the working conditions entirely, they set it up so that they can deny responsibility. It's a complete facade, but it's effective. You know, the, the, the two things that I always try to emphasize with consumer activists is say, you know, what can we do about these brands is one, support the unions, right? You, the, the workers are going to have to save themselves, right? That's how it works. They have power if they organize and um, they're brilliant, valiant organizers. They can save themselves and they will, but we have to support them in any way that we can. And then the second thing is, to constantly cut through the lie that the brands put out there that they do not employ the workers, that they do not control the wages and conditions of the garment workers. So anytime that that is, is raised, um, I adamantly dispute it. And I think that consumer activists need to as well. Um, to anyone that will listen, and especially directly to the brands when they trot that nonsense propaganda out there. Are you concerned that you're going to run into the same issues with Mango again, or do you just, or do you think this potentially will be the last of it? I'm hoping it's the latter. It is definitely not the last of it. I hate to disappoint you, Venetia, but you know, in, in these types of struggles, the brands really, in this case, they give to workers only what they must and anything they can pocket for themselves in, in, in terms of profit, as opposed to putting it into wages, as opposed to putting it into um, factory safety, they will. And so when we organize like the workers in, in the Wally factory did, and like we did with them, when we organize, we have power to, um, to hold them accountable. And the farther we organize across the world, the more people um, we get into our movement, then Mango will have to listen. But the second we relax, the second the union is broken in the factory, or the second that we stop campaigning, Mango will go back parasitically almost and just try to suck out as much profit as they can, and they won't feel any of that pressure. We will run into this dispute again, and we're going to have to organize and campaign again. And the more we do it, I think the more they'll learn the lesson, Mango and other brands, they'll learn the lesson that they can't get away with. We'd love to hear a little bit about your hopes for the future of unions and for centering worker voices. Well, I mean, obviously, the more worker unions in garment factories grow, the better the working conditions are going to be and the more that the worker voices are going to be heard. I mean, it's good to give you know, like tokenistic representation to um, a few voices on panels and all that. But if we really want garment workers' voices to matter, right, not just quote unquote be heard, but to really matter and have power, then they've got to organize. What I would like to see is for the garment worker unions to grow and for the consumer activist movement that is, is growing, I would like to see that movement kind of see clearly the uh, lie that the quote-unquote sustainability uh, programs, clothing lines, and industry really is for um, these brands and just reject it. 
and say we're going to support the the worker movements as you know you know fellow human beings linking arms they're going to organize with the garment workers themselves set up ways we can continue to talk and communicate like this and demand that the brands uh, produce their goods in factories that pay a living wage factories that have reasonable work hours factory where there's no verbal or sexual abuse of the workers and factory where there's a union because that's the only way to really guarantee um, protection for workers going forward is that they've got a collective voice together. Brilliant. Thank you so much for that wonderful, hopeful way to end. No problem. Thanks to you, Venetia, and to you, Davey, for taking the time to talk with us and you know, particularly to talk with the, the union leaders to reiterate the, the solidarity work that you do as consumer activists is really important. It's really helpful and impactful in the, in the struggles that we are waging in the garment factories. And now on to our final and perhaps most powerful set of interviews with two Myanmar-based workers, Tintin Wei, union president at Running Tech's Garment Factory, and Tuzarji, union president at Amber Stone Factory. We are so grateful for Tintin and Tuzar for their precious time to share their views with us. The interviews were done in Burmese and you'll hear the translation by Shin. We are grateful to Shin for joining the conversation and for so generously translating so more of us can hear these powerful stories. First, we have Tintin Wei, union president at Running Tech's Garment Factory in Yangon, Myanmar. Earlier in 2020, the Garment Workers Union at Running Tech's staged a sit-down strike inside the factory, refusing to work or leave the factory until an agreement was signed to ensure workers receive their full wages during the temporary factory closure due to the pandemic. As you'll find out, Tintin is also an organiser for the Federation of Garment Workers Myanmar on a completely volunteer basis. Tintin's story is so powerful and her commitment to work every day for the future of the fashion industry is so inspiring. We also spoke to the equally inspiring Tuzar Ji, union president at Amberstone Factory. You might remember Amberstone Factory hitting the headlines in August 2020 when several news outlets reported widespread violence and intimidation of workers, which were also raised in the report by Business and Human Rights, authored by Tulsi, our guest on episode five, on emerging and widespread patterns of supplier factories appearing to target unionized workers, organizing for better conditions, who were being aggressive and illegally dismissed. We are so grateful to have Tuzar join us and Shim for translating her story into English. I am so delighted to be joined by Tintin Wei and Tuzar G on this call. Very, very grateful for you and thank you for joining us. So let us start as we always do with our conversations. What are you wearing today? Well, uh, uh, so for Tuzaji, uh, she is like wearing the Burmese like a kind of dress uh, which is green. Tinningwe is wearing orange like a night dress. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that. We would love to hear how in the garment industry and we'd also like to know what are the kind of best and worst things about your work and also who have you been making clothes for most recently she is 26 years old now and she has been working in garment center for 13 years so since she was 13 years old the worst experience is like uh, it was in 2015. They had a, a very long strike 
like for getting the minimum wage. So it was the worst experience because it, it was like like nearly two months long strike for getting minimum wage at her factory. Although her education is low, she has a lot of experience working in common center. So she understands like really about the common worker life and she, and that, that that means that she has a practical experience working in that garment sector and that is the best experience what her factory is producing right now uh is like a jacket like jacket she's a big uh big like kind of clothes in her factory uh in terms of the brands so she doesn't know the brands because they are several brands and 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 right now like her factory is taking the order from the other factories uh, do the factory. It's like kind of subcontracting. So yeah. For Duzaji, uh, she started working in like a garment center factory since 2016, and she is now 33 years old. So she's she has about like four years experience. Best experience working in garment center is like she get to know all kind of people, like the employer. Uh, the supervisors and the fellow workers so she get to know many people the worst experience is the operation from the employer especially the employer using the tax to kind of intimidate the union leaders and union workers so that is the worst experience in her factory right now like uh, they are producing like uh, clothing from the guest brands guess is definitely something that we're going to be speaking about. Can you explain a little bit more about thugs before we proceed? Uh, maybe that's a term that our listeners haven't come across before. Regarding the thugs, in, in her factory, a few months ago, like they demanded for clean water and clean like toilet, clean sanitations. Uh, because of those demands, uh, the employer like hire thugs um like to beat the union leaders so like uh like when like uh, one or two union leader was beaten by those thugs the employer hire like uh, the thugs to stay inside the factory like they pay about like ten thousand jet per day like ten thousand jet is about like eight eight dollar per day to to come and stay inside the factory basically to intimidate the workers uh that there are thugs inside the factory and and you have to kind of follow the employer uh, order like to work like obediently so what the what the employer asks us to do is like to kind of create like kind of fights between the workers and the thugs when Duza was working in the factory there were thugs around the factory like following her intimidating like especially the union workers and union leaders thugs sounds like the perfect word for them and i'm so sorry to hear that that is commonplace and that you've experienced that. Tintin, we would really appreciate if you told us what being the union president at Running Tech's Garment Factory entails and what that work means to you. Tintin we has been union president since they formed the union in her factory like Running Tech's. So Dinewe has been the union president since 2017. He decided to become union president is that she opposed injustice and she kind of opposed the operation from the employer. She she doesn't want to see the workers' rights are violated by the employer and also exploited by the employer. So 
she has the mind of opposing the operations and injustice. Uh, that is why uh, she decided to become the, uh, the union president. Although she is the union president, she also tried to have like many leaders inside the factory because having many leaders is good for the union. So although she is the union president, she, she tried to kind of teach other fellow union uh, workers uh, to become the leaders. We love that. That's amazing. Amazing to hear all about the collective power. That's incredible. I also hear that Tintin Wei is a volunteer as an organizer for the Federation of Garment Workers. Why did she decide to, to volunteer in this way? Okay. In her factory, they have the union. There are many factories which do not have unions. So she want the other factories uh, to have the union. So, uh, so the way to organize other factories to have union is to take part in the federation with other like uh, union leaders, like to kind of organize new unions in other factories. She has the intention of like uh, improving the uh, living conditions of workers in Myanmar and making sure that workers get their labor rights like fully. So that is why she kind of uh, like volunteer her time in the Federation. For her, like she, she doesn't take rest in holidays or in weekends. So she always go to the Federation office like to meet with the new, like a new, new unions and new factories which they are trying to organize. For the Federation, like in the near, like a, in, the, in the coming months, they will have a, a Congress and then she will like kind of take part in the Congress elections uh, to become the a leader in the federations. Uh, she want to work not only for her factory, but for the other like a, like a factories. Like she want to kind of lead and organize many unions in Myanmar. For her, it's like having food on her table. That is enough for her. That is why she volunteered. You are the union president at Amberstone Factory. So please, can you explain what's been happening there over the past few months with? brands that we are very familiar with and our listeners will be familiar with guess and also primark for Duzaji, like she joined the union since the union was formed uh, but she became the president only two months ago in june uh, this year uh, the employer dis dismissed 28 uh, union workers like who are the union stewards and lawfully like without without reasons right because the stewards are important for the factory so the employer uh dismiss all the like nearly all the stewards from the union in in june but, but with the help of the primark uh those workers uh were reinstated in august at the time like primark was uh, they were producing primark in the factory so like they got the help from the primark uh to reinstate those uh dismissed uh, 28 workers who are the stewards of the union. Uh, however, in September 22nd, uh, the employer like dismissed all the union leaders and, and nearly all the union members uh, from the factory. So it, it was about 270 workers, 250 like uh, union workers and 20 are non-union workers. So it was like clearly targeting all the union leaders and all the stewards, all the like a workplace coordination committee members were dismissed. Right now, uh, what is happening inside the factory uh, when like there is no union presence is that the employer and then the managers 
and then the supervisors are kind of uh, like fiercely oppressing the workers. Um, so uh, some worker inside the factory call Duda and ask when the union will be like a leaders or union workers will be back to the factory uh, because they cannot pay the operation from the employer. So like they even cry when 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 the worker call to call to her. So like there is a lot of operation going on because the union disappeared from the factory when they were dismissed. So and and right now uh, they are producing gas and 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 the another brand. So which reserve brand. So it, it has 60,000 order now. So it's a new brand. And do they no longer produce, sorry, just to be clear, do they no longer produce Primark there because Primark cut, cut ties and went to a new factory? In August, like 28 dismissed workers, like a union uh, workers were reinstated in August. So after they were reinstated, uh, the employer, uh, the factory employer talked in the meeting that she is fooled by Primark. The reason she reinstated the 28 uh, dismissed workers uh, was because she was hoping orders from Primark. But however, uh, in September, there is no more order. Uh, she, she talked to the workers that Primark no longer order in the factory. The union contacted Primark and asked whether Primark uh, is they ordering in the factory. Primark replied to the union that it is not the Primark, like the Primark, Primark kind of uh, gave order to the, but the factory doesn't accept the order. Primark also said they are amazed uh, by the employer, employer like response in not accepting the Primark orders. Like it's like two like different answers. Uh, the employer like told the workers that uh, the employer no longer order from the factory. Uh, but when the union contacted Primark, Primark answered that it's not them, it's the employer like who do not, who is, who is not accepting the orders from Primark to uh, produce in the factory. There just seems to be, a, yeah, a lot of shifting on of the blame. In terms of guess, um, we would love to hear more about how negotiations have been going. Um, and we'd love to understand if the negotiations that they have been after are they with guess, are they with factory or are they with the brand uh, directly? Because some of the conversations that we've had on this podcast earlier this year have demonstrated that as a result of conversations happening on platforms like Zoom, uh, workers are having more direct contact with brands because of that capability. But yeah, we'd love to hear more about how they have been communicating and negotiating and whether that's been with the brand directly or whether it's been with the factory. There is no like negotiation meeting happening uh, like between union and employer and then the brand. There is no negotiation meeting um, and, and, and they are not responding quickly or effectively. They only said they will investigate the matter. Like for the workers, like they are they were dismissed like two months ago, so they are unemployed now for two months. And so like the workers are suffering. Guests need to respond to this situation like quickly and effectively. I know I speak on behalf of all of us when we say we just feel so, so awful that that is happening. Is there anything 
we can do collectively to help put the pressure on guests to sort, sort this situation out and get uh, workers reinstated. She wants you and the, the customers to put like any pressure that you can uh, to guest brand uh, to intervene in this in this like a, a dismissal case. It, it was clearly targeting the union and to destroy the union. For for the workers uh, who were suing the, who were suing guest clothes, they want to be reinstated quickly. So any pressure that you can do, it will be helpful for them. There is no like specific like request, but any pressure you can do will be good for them. What would you like to say to the brands who are encouraging us to buy and buy things that we don't necessarily need with no education or little to no education about the environmental environmental and of course human cost of that product for the name way like uh she had that uh so like the clothes that they produce are like like wool by their customers in the West only a short period, like one week or uh, one month. But here, like the workers, like uh, produce uh, those clothes with giving their like sweat and blood, but with very cheap price. Even like sometimes the employer like violate even the basic labor rights uh, here. For the consumer there, yeah, they should know about like how their clothing are produced. And also, like they should be aware of those environmental impacts as well. One final question for Tintin Y and Tuzaji: What are your hopes for your work, your union's demands, and how would this help with the fashion industry overall? So for Tintin like she has like she want to make two main points regarding your questions. So one point is about uh, labor rights violation. So, so in the industry, she want she want uh, all the like garment workers to enjoy the rights given by the given by the law. She want to make sure that all workers enjoy their rights. So if the violation occurs, it would be good like to get the support from the consumers for making sure that they are the workers who produce their clothes enjoy their rights. So the second thing is about the fair price. So right now they are paid very low uh, because of that all the workers suffer for their living. They don't have enough income uh, for their living. So in the industry, like she want the fair kind of price for producing the For Duzer, she want uh, the workers to be working in the conditions where they are free from operations also enjoying uh, their labor rights and also getting the decent wage for the brands like they are making huge profits and it should be like she's not asking to share like a lot of profit to the worker she just want the workers to have a decent life like the exploitation is very high so she's not saying to cut like all the exploitations uh, but the workers should at least have a a decent life. Uh, also, the uh, the worker should have the right to organize the unions. So she want uh, the uh, like the garment factory owners not to break the union. So she want uh, in the industry the union can grow and prosper.
absolutely thank you so much for sharing that and we want that for them too and we are standing in solidarity with you thank you so so much uh tintin white and tuzarji for your time and for your energy and for everything that you do from all of us thank you so so much it was so great to hear from Tintin Wei and Tuzaji because it's really what motivates me about this campaign and all the work that's being done in this movement to go beyond buying things that make us feel better and, you know, maybe change the system a bit. We have to go a step further and actually get in solidarity, stand next to, stand behind, stand with workers if we're going to change the system and what i'm curious about and still motivated to figure out is like how can we get people that high i guess that they search for in in the ethical consumption like i'm just thinking about on instagram and social media of like wanting to show that off i really want to see people feel that same sense of pride and goodness and self-confidence and sexiness in signing a petition or banging on a policymaker's door or going to a sit-in to learn about um, how to organize at work. All of that is what makes, what turns me on. <laughs> and I, that's what I hope for the future in our campaign as well. And that's why I admire uh, the pay up campaign and remakes work i think they're helping make those really great connections i think just to also quickly add to that i totally am inspired by tintin way and Thuzaji as well and their sort of resilience in in the fight for a better industry i think you know sometimes we think um maybe too highly of ourselves that actually we are able to change the system simply by buying ethically and you know draping ourselves in more beautiful clothes and i myself have been in that position and thinking that and really what we have to remember is that it's the workers who are treated really unfairly living in on poverty wages most of the time in very precarious unjust situations they show up every day to fight for a better industry for, to fight for a better industry for people and planet and they're the ones showing up literally day in day out with action and I feel like as consumers, we need to be aware of what they're doing. And we need to, as Davy said, look at how we are better in solidarity with them. And that goes for me beyond what we do just with our with our pound, with our dollar. It goes beyond that into action for what we can do to stand better in solidarity to change the system. Because the reality is, is we just don't have time. The fashion industry is destroying lives and it's also destroying the planet there's irrefutable evidence for that and we also know things have to change fast and we're going to do it faster if we go together it does actually remind me of, of a quote that i found really inspiring over the last sort of 10 years really in my own activism from an aboriginal activist from australia lila watson and it says if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, let us work together. I think it's really powerful when we think about being in solidarity with garment workers. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for all of your support since our launch in August of this year. Thank you to Melissa LaRue and Colin Emmanuel for our podcast music. 
and every person who has joined us on the show. Aisha Barenblatt, Audra Barber, Salamisha Tillich, Jeeva, Kusar Ali, Saira Feroz, Ambika Satkunananthan, Monica Hartzell, Shamila Tushari, Ananya Batterji, Tulsi Narayanasami, Julia Kinyoth, Tanya Turner, Nazma Atker, Elizabeth Klein, Andrew Tillitsaks, Tintin Wei and Tujarji. We'd also like to thank Pentagram and Do The Green Thing for their help with our graphics and branding and a massive thank you to our core Remember Who Made Them team, our gorgeous web designer Gina and our incredible and immensely talented illustrators Judith, Sophie, Magali, Holly, Rebecca and Sakina. Finally, thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast, for liking our Instagram posts, for signing petitions, for wearing old clothes, for holding brands to account for amplifying worker demands, for donating to our Patreon and for listening to this podcast. We are so grateful for you. We all love clothes. Let's remember who made them.